0: Now, entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. back ladies and gentlemen as always I'm the first host dr Corey petty of hashing it out my co-host as always with me colin i'm Couchet the second first mr. Mr. mr colin crochet hey what's <laughs> up everybody
1: colin man why you gotta put the mister there <laughs> I'm just because you're a doctor? I'm a doctor yeah yeah because you're a doctor <laughs> what a prick move oh my god dude come on i get real opportunities call to call you do out that of that have fun I'm the first host, and I'm a doctor. Really, just where you're gonna go with that? Yeah, oh, that man. Sounds great. I like that. I love you. I love you, Corey. Anyway, what's up, Colin? <laughs> got to keep got to keep it going. Yeah. What's up, what's up, Colin? That's what you said, right? Yeah. That was my intro this time. That's, that okay. was your intro, and you nailed it. Um,
0: yeah. Today's episode, we brought in Blockstack,
1: and with us to describe
0: everything Blockstack is core engineer Aaron Blankstein. Uh, why don't we start by um, allowing you to introduce yourself, where you came from, uh, how you got into the space, and, and uh, we can start from there. We'll start diving into what Blockstack is and why it's important.
2: Cool. Yeah, thanks for the intro. Um, yeah, so I'm Aaron, like I said, uh, like Corey said, uh, core engineer at Blockstack. I've uh, been working on sort of all things Blockstack for a little over two years now. Uh, I joined uh, the blockchain space and, and Blockstack in general, Sort of right out of academia, of uh, a very academic background, uh, you can find like various papers published under my name, things like that. Um, I think uh, I came to the space from the perspective that I wanted to work on interesting things, um, and I also wanted to like sort of change the world more than you could in academia. Uh, and I saw, uh, I think, a lot of really like hopeful ideas about the future in the blockchain space in general. Like, I think that uh, computer science in general over the last uh, 20 years has kind of trended towards a lot of not so great things. Like, I don't wanna necessarily work in an advertising company, uh, build the future of advertising, things like that. And uh, the blockchain space, I think, offers a really cool alternative to that.
0: Well, that's... that's, I have a similar background in terms of, I came from academia and then decided that yes. this is a better place to be for uh, my future. What it, why Blockstack? What is it about Blockstack? Or first off, what is Blockstack? And yeah. then we can maybe talk about why you decided to go there.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so Blockstack is a, um, I think it's like a, a full stack architecture for building uh, decentralized applications. Uh, so there's a couple of words in there that mean different things to different people. So I'll start with like what decentralized applications mean in the context of Blockstack. So uh, decentralized application is an application where the, uh, the sort of content that people are communicating to each other, uh, the rules through which they are uh, communicating that content, things like that, all of that is happening at the edge of the network rather than in the center of the network. So if you think of um, a classic centralized application, maybe like uh, a Twitter or something like that, right? You have some server in California that is harvesting or collecting everybody's tweets, uh, distributing them to <laughs> people. The <purchase>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, distributing to the people that uh, Twitter sort of decides should get to see in various tweets or, or should uh, see them in their their streams, things like that, uh, and it sort of pushes them outwards. Uh, In a decentralized application, um, that's happening uh, sort of on the end user's clients, right? Like we have these computers, we have these mobile phones, they're uh, very smart, they're very powerful, they're capable of doing a lot more things than we currently do with them. Uh, And actually those devices, those are what are actually like pushing data to other users uh, in the application. So where Blockstack fits into this is Blockstack is sort of designed from the ground up to, like, make building those kinds of applications uh, really easy uh, and limiting the application developers' uh, exposure and reliance on the blockchain uh, sort of as much as possible, because blockchains can be confusing to interact with uh, for developers. They're also expensive to interact with, right? Like, blockchain should not be thought of as, like, a general purpose database. it's not just like a drop-in replacement for MySQL in your app. Uh, and so Blockstack uh, pr- tries to provide a, a full stack for, for doing that. Um, so there's multiple layers of like, abstraction that are introduced to make this job easier. So we have like, a decentralized storage system called Gaia um, that mostly functions or functions pretty much entirely off-chain um, that allows uh, application developers to really get started building apps uh, on Blockstack. Uh, with pretty much just JavaScript experience.
1: So that's probably, so there's a, a few topics here that we really, I really want to know about. Gaia is most certainly one of them, but I mean, like, I really want to know a lot about Gaia. Um, uh, but what uh, I think we should probably start with is, is, what is the architecture of Block Blockstack? How does it sort of differentiate itself from, say, Ethereum?
2: Yeah, sure. So I I think that like, if you look at, uh, so I'll start by, I guess, uh, characterizing Ethereum at like a very high level. Uh, Don't like pin me to this. I mean, Ethereum is probably a hundred different things to a hundred different people, but at like a very high level, if you look at like the original goal of Ethereum, right? It was to be like the world's computer. And so a lot of applications, when they're initially built on Ethereum, like the idea is that uh, you use the Ethereum blockchain to do almost all of the things that your app needs to do when sharing between different people, right? So you send someone a message, you know, somehow you sort of like relay that across the chain. Um, In Blockstack, we take uh, an approach where there's kind of multiple layers of indirection kind of rooted in the blockchain. And the, the way to really, I guess, explore like, what the block stack architecture means and like why it's kind of so different um, from Ethereum is to look at like how a uh, initial lookup of another user's uh, like user profile or some other piece of data, like how that is implemented and how that's kind of like routed in the network. Um, so the way it starts, right, is if you have uh, your application and you say, okay, uh, I'm bob.id uh, and I want to read uh, alice.id's profile, um, your application is going to start doing an algorithmic lookup to find information about alice.id in a decentralized way. So the first thing that it does is it contacts uh, your configured uh, block core node, uh, which is a piece of software that runs the actual Uh, Blockstack, uh, Stacks Blockchain. So it contacts the Blockstack core node, asks asks the core node for um, information about Alice.ID. It returns uh, a DNS zone file that indicates, uh, inside of it, it gives a URL to a location on Gaia where you can find even more data about that user. It also returns a public key. Um, using those two pieces of information, your client then uh, performs a lookup on Alice.id's specified Gaia Hub for the data that you're looking for. And then it uh, confirms that that data was actually uh, written by Alice uh, by uh, verifying that it was signed by that given public key.
1: Right. Yeah, and, and this is kind of like a common paradigm in the way that I think distributed systems are currently built. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's not that revolutionary in that standpoint. I think the thing that makes a decentralized app decentralized is the governance of it. And um, what differentiates Blockstack in terms of that? Does it, it, runs its own blockchain, I assume, correct? Like what, what is this sure. trust mechanism? What, 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 how, how is, how is consensus arrived on the Blockstack block network? How is data replicated across the network? In other words, like for Ethereum, everybody has to have at least the light client going on. And then even you, then you're trusting like validators who have like the full node. Um, what is, what is the, what is the architecture of the trust and the governance mechanism behind, behind Blockstack before we get into like identity management and, you know, decentralized file storage, your smart contract system and your token, what is, how is governance actually handled on this? Right. So what we have, uh, today is basically the stacked
2: blockchain, which is resolving these identities to these pieces of information. Um, that runs today, uh, and a piece of technology we call a virtual chain, which is essentially an embedding of a blockchain in Bitcoin op returns. Um, the block stack white paper describes the sort of next version of our consensus algorithm that we're moving towards, uh, where there will be, you know, stacks blocks and this sort of like a higher, we, we go up like one layer of indirection from the Bitcoin blockchain, where instead of having our transactions actually embedded in Bitcoin transactions, we're kind of embedding whole blocks. Um, As far as governance of these uh, names, which uh, are today the primary function on the Blockstack blockchain, um, these names are registerable by anybody at any point in time as long as the name hasn't been registered before. You basically say, I wanna register a new identity on the network um, you broadcast a pre-order or register transactions, and you essentially burn a cryptocurrency to pay for the registration of that name, and it's valid for as long as you uh, renew or use that name. Um,
1: so, can you explain to me a little more about the tutable proofs process? Um, yeah, yeah. What is like how is leader detect leader election like done? Like. So this sounds a lot like at this point, um, and again, like I can't, I I really wish I could say that I gave like a a full day to like look at the white paper. Um, but I have not gotten to that point. It's pretty much been a couple hours of skimming. You know what I mean? It's read over distracted by something else, come back to it. So I'd like to learn more direct from you if that's okay. Um, but there's a couple things I picked up on, um, both in what you just said and, 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 you know, reading the leader election aspect of, of the white paper itself. Um, it sounds like Blockstacks is kind of a layer two solution or analogous to other layer two solutions. Would you say that's a fair comparison?
2: Uh, I'm not sure. So usually when um, usually when something is described as like a layer two solution, um, when it exists at layer two, it, it doesn't have its own um, consensus
1: process. Um like, so you're not you have your own own process, but it's yeah. not inheriting from Bitcoin. It seems like it's
0: more like a virtual blockchain that inherits from the security model of other blockchains.
1: Yeah.
2: So what it what it gains from Bitcoin is actually a uh, an ability to to strictly order the history of leaders.
1: Ah. Okay. And that's interesting because that's that's essentially what I, I kind of like often myself boil down the the actual double spend problem itself is just an ordering problem. It's like, what order, you know, what, what order did transactions occur? Right. Yes. Um, Yeah. That's basically it. Like, you know, uh, for the most part, um, you know, uh, who's right first is the, everybody's right. Who's Right. First. Um, And so you inherit that. So when, but then, okay. So then that's kind of interesting how, if that person is All right, i got to know more how just tell me about All how right. that works yeah that doesn't yeah. seem to make sense right now okay
2: yeah yeah so i think uh I'll, I'll start with i guess describing like what um the sort of stacks blockchain v2 kind of like looks like if you just try to look at it as its own blockchain so that the idea of the stacks blockchain v2 is that we want to have a blockchain that has open membership mining um which means that like anybody can participate as what would be a miner, right? We do that with a system we call Tutable Proofs, which I can describe a little bit later. Um, but the basic way that the blockchain itself um, performs ordering and does block selection and then chain selection as well, is that at any given point in time, known to the entire network, there's a single leader. So we do uh, leader election. Uh, this process happens through cryptographic sortition, Um, It's chosen using these tunable proofs, Um, but that election itself um, is ordered by the Bitcoin blockchain. So like the only way that everybody in the world can decide that the same person is the leader at any given moment is by broadcasting those transactions on some underlying chain. So that's what we use that like notion of time to achieve. Once you have a single leader at a given point in time, that single leader during the process of building a block could do something like initiate um, a fork in the Stacks blockchain. It wouldn't be a fork in Bitcoin, but it would be a fork in the Stacks blockchain. And so that's why we like to think of it as very much independent or more independent than a traditional Layer 2 solution would be, right?
1: Right. So you've got – well, yeah, because you've got your own trust mechanism that's basically – uh, yeah, sorry, truth database, I guess you could call it. That's, that's kind of inheriting from the information. So when you say the leader election, I'm assuming you're taking, you're using a block hash or is it, as, as the, the a random number generator, basically, is it a random beacon? And that uses, you use that to determine your leader. Is that how that works? Uh,
2: somewhat like it's a component in the randomness. So, The way that the uh, leader election works is that um, basically, if you look um, at an election block, say like the block that decides who the next leader is going to be, um, that block actually is a a Bitcoin block. Um, The transactions that uh, would be leaders, like candidates, um, the transactions that they submit to be potentially elected are basically burns of an underlying cryptocurrency, in this case, Bitcoin. Um, They're like a commitment to the uh, Stacks uh, chain that they're gonna be building off of. Um, Some proof of work um, component that they're committing to, which is like independent of the Bitcoin currency, the cryptocurrency that they're burning. Um, And their uh, contribution to the a uh, random seed. So they combine all those things, include those in a Bitcoin transaction, and then any node reading through the network can see those Bitcoin transactions, um, combine these things, perform uh, the cryptographic uh, random function mm-hmm. on all of these inputs that everybody sees as well, um, and choose who the leader is based off those inputs.
1: So it's a little bit like a Randout contract in, in, in some respect. Um, and I would assume there's also a cascading effect built in here where previous... Yeah, tra- yeah okay. Um, yeah. So it's a little bit like a Randall contract, if 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 you're familiar with that. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's like a group randomness um, Yeah, that's contract. basically... Yeah. yeah. Um, where that input is used to do, like, a Algorand, almost, type style sortition.
1: Interesting. So, I mean, there are... I See, I... I, I'm not uh, versed enough. I know there's criticisms of that approach. Um, I don't remember them very well, though. Corey maybe does. I don't know. But there there's some questions as to whether uh, about how random that actually is or how non-gameable that actually is. Um, do you have concerns with security around people maybe finding a way to even manipulate the system 10% of the time or 1% of the time, enough to make it... Um... So, like, once you elect a leader... Does that matter? What does the leader get? Why would somebody want to be a leader? What is the advantage of being a leader? I think that's what, what, what kind of solved oh, yeah. that problem is the incentivization model. Um, yeah. yeah? Okay. okay.
2: Yeah, so I think uh, there's, there's kind of two, two questions there, maybe two points. I'll, I'll talk about maybe the first, which is about the game ability of the random number. So one of the inputs to the random number is um, the Bitcoin nonce or like Bitcoin block hash, whatever of the current block. Um, if you could manipulate that, what that essentially means is that you're capable of mining two Bitcoin blocks that would be valid at that point in time. And, uh, so, okay. and so it would only be profitable to you to like, try to do that gamingness uh, if uh, mining a Stacks block, like becoming the leader for a Stacks block, was worth more than mining a Bitcoin block.
0: So yeah. that's basically what it means. It's like what, yeah. you, what you would need to do is do a withholding attack if you're a miner. And if you, if you have a valid block and you have the nonce and then see uh, what, you can, what you can do to manipulate on the block stack network uh, within, within leaderboards. And if you can't become a leader based on that, then you discard it and do something else, which means that the cost or like the profitability of the Bitcoin block is worth less than becoming a leader in block stack. And so you're making a bet that that's never going to be the case.
2: Right. So I guess that, that parlays kind of nicely into the next point, which is what's the what do you what's the advantage of being a stacks leader? What do you get? Like what power do you have? So first of all, uh, the stacks leader is um, they're building basically the next block for the of stacks transactions. So you can collect things like transaction fees, you get like a mining reward. Um, you can also do chain selection on the stacks chain. So there is potentially a lot of value. Um, when you mean chain selection, you mean like forking rules? or Yeah, yeah, forking rules, exactly. Mm. So you could initiate a fork if you're a leader, right? Similar to how a Bitcoin miner can always initiate a fork.
1: Is there any way that the block stacks architecture can force a leader?
2: Um, not as
1: designed. Interesting. So if you wanted to fork the block stacks, like upgrade the block architecture, um, would you need forking for that or do you have another process uh, for that kind of stuff? Um, would you happen to have to get a, a a sympathetic leader in order for a fork to occur?
2: Yeah. As uh, currently designed, um, forks need participation from leaders.
1: Interesting. Okay. Okay. So a sympathetic leader would elect a fork and everybody else would decide whether or not to go with it. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, exactly. So... Um you know, uh, nodes would have their own sort of chain selection rules. Um, but if you're an honest leader, um, you would follow the chain selection rules of whatever the consensus, uh, of the box that core nodes was.
1: And so what is, what, what is the, let's just say a leader. So first off Bitcoin, since you were, you're, you're inheriting your, um, your security model from, or you not security model. I don't think it's the right word. Uh, what would be the right word security?
2: yeah so basically
1: bitcoin it's a 10 minute block time you know and a 60 minute confirmation time nonetheless you know um which i don't know if that would actually impact or not uh unless you're like only looking at the leading edge of that six six confirmations um which would make sense but you can't because you need to register them ahead of time so like how quickly can this system actually elect leaders in the event of a bad leader
2: yeah, so leader election is a once every Bitcoin block kind of process. So yeah, there's a delay in leader selection. Uh, leaders can only fork, like uh, the chain length rules are basically governed by the number of epochs is what we call them, different ten years of leaders basically. Um, so like the default chain selection is to say uh, the best chain is the one with the most number of epochs. Um, so a bad leader can't, can only do, like, one block's worth of damage in a 10-minute period, uh,
1: if that makes sense. Um, but do they actually do damage, or is there a way for the network to know that and do a second leader election?
2: Um, so there is a way to know that, right? Because you will witness. Yeah,
1: literally everybody will see it, but yeah. the, the network has to flow. Things have to go in, things have to come out. Just because yeah. somebody's being a douche doesn't mean that we have the, the, the you know, business can't, can't stop working. So what is a contingency in the event that a, um, a leader is um, behaving maliciously or at least in not good faith? Uh, well, so I guess it depends
2: on how poorly they're behaving. So if they're behaving so poorly as they actually like violate just like correctness rules of the blockchain, um, you know, they, they attempt like obvious double spends, things like that. Um, their leader uh, candidacy is actually just like nullified and you can move on to a different leader immediately, right? Because it's witnessable to everybody in the network and everybody can kind of agree very trivially that this leader is behaving poorly. Um, If instead they're trying to initiate like a deep reorganization or something like that, um, things like the inherent slowness of leader election and our chain selection rule um, make it take a very long time for somebody to do a deep reorg, right? Like if you wanna do a reorg of like 20 leader blocks or something, that means it's gonna take at least 20 Bitcoin blocks of you winning um to be able to initiate the reorg um however if uh you elect a leader this leader is doing really bad things they're trying to initiate the reorg things like that um the network in the following block uh will be attempting to elect an honest leader at that point right um it's like competing I guess against a dishonest Bitcoin miner in that sense.
1: Yeah, but I I think so. I mean, yeah, the network can notice, but what what can they do about it? Is I don't maybe you did mention that, but I didn't pick up on it.
2: Oh well, I mean, the idea is that you you try to elect an honest leader in the next election.
1: So that means for ten minutes you've been briefed. Yeah. Oof. Um, Is is that on the what What is the proposed solution for that? Because that's a long time for a network to kind of. Deal with a griefing scenario isn't it or is the or or am i overestimating the impacts of this
2: um well i think that it's kind of that's the price you pay on some level of having an actual open membership
0: mining pool right there's a reasonable it's a reasonable justification i'm kind of curious like if the if the consensus mechanism works and this is and this is stable what are people putting on the blockchain what's 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 the reason for the blockchain itself
2: yeah, so um, the the sort of like biggest items that we have today are, one, uh, names in the Blockstack naming system, which are used for doing the like initial trusted lookup of other users' data in Blockstack applications, Blockstack naming system names. Um, so that's like kind of the first uh, use case, and it's the largest use of our network today. It's like a a distributed DNS in a way. Yep, exactly. Um, And then uh, there are Stacks transactions themselves, which are just transfers of Stacks, which are used to pay for those names. Um, And then a third, um, which is a feature that's coming with the Stacks Blockchain V2, is the the introduction of uh, Clarity smart contracts.
1: Sounds like a good segue. What is what, what is? Uh, I want to know more about Clarity. So, why did you name it that?
0: <laughs> or what are, yeah. what are what are smart We're, contracts? Because we first. sure
1: could use a lot of clarity in the smart contract world. What, what are point.
0: what are what are smart contracts in the block stack viewpoint as well? And then why Clarity or what is Clarity and why did you choose it?
2: Yeah. So uh, I'll start with uh, how we see smart contracts. So I think that the the general idea behind Uh, smart contracts on the Stacks blockchain is that we believe that like in the space in general um, people have yet to really discover like I guess the killer use case for um, blockchains right like certainly within the broader world right blockchains have not yet found like a use where you say okay this is like an irreplaceable use. Like if this disappeared, like I would not be able to function at the same level tomorrow, right? Um, And so because of that, like we want there to be a mechanism for um, people to extend the functionality of our blockchain without requiring a hard fork, without requiring reprogramming um, our core nodes, software, things like that. Uh, And so smart contracts uh, will add some level of programmability to the blockchain.
1: So I noticed that you built things in like static analysis and that kind of stuff, like right into the core, core of the language. But I haven't yeah. gotten deep deep enough into to what the language was yet to actually see if it has some core features we've been talking about on the program lately, one of them being like formal verification. Is this a Turing-complete language? And if not, can it be formally verified? Are these – what is what is the concern about people uh, – what is like the scalability? Ah, I see smart contracting language clarity that is a non-Turing-complete Interpreted language. Okay, cool. I see it now. Yeah. Um, so, like, are you integrating things like formal verification into your system? Uh, is uh, you know, we've we've had a lot of people lately say you know, turning complete smart contracts are not the way to go. Including like Kadena was on our program recent, uh, yep. recently to talk about Pact, um, and it seems like a very very strong argument. Um, what what uh what is the Clarity language like? Um, What can it do? What can it do? And why can't it do that stuff?
2: Yeah, so I would say uh, at the most superficial level, uh, Clarity is a Lisp-like language. Um, uh, We could go into, I guess, some detail around like why a Lisp variant was chosen. Um, But I mean, basically, we wanted to deliver something like a functional programming language because... They're much more declarative of like program intent, things like that than uh, uh, normal programming language. Um, want to deliver a functional programming language and Lisp variants have sort of minimal requirements from the actual interpreter, right? Like a Lisp language is like, you're basically writing an abstract syntax tree as a programmer. Um, okay, um, so that's like kind of most superficially, but... Uh, the two like key design decisions that we made, I think, about uh, Clarity are one that we wanted a uh, Turing incomplete language. Um, what Turing incomplete means in our um, scenario is that like any given uh, transaction that you ever issue, like any single transaction defined in your smart contract, uh, is itself Turing incomplete. Um, it can't do things like uh, recurse. There's no uh, dynamic invocation. Um there's no ability to like um iterate over arbitrary lists. you can't scan a database um things like that. so all of our data interfaces they're they look much more like interactions with a key value store rather than interactions with a SqL
0: database. yeah stronger guarantees that it will halt well you have guarantees that it will halt
2: yes uh so well uh any program will definitely halt um you can also uh in Clarity, statically analyze the uh, runtime um, and memory usage for any program, um, which is a really key feature uh, for uh, an open blockchain because you wanna be able to assign uh, transaction costs to transactions issued on the blockchain, but you don't wanna necessarily build in an abort mechanism like you have to in Ethereum where like, you know, you're paying you you set some gas limit and then you have a gas fee. It's like kind of a confusing computation model that you have to deal with because you can't know a priori, a priori uh, exactly how much a transaction is going to cost you.
0: These smart contracts are embedded into the blockchain, correct? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by embedded. Like anyone would like to, because it's, it's it's I'm reading that it's an interpreted language, so it's not compiled yeah. to some you know EVM bytecode. So the interpreted language is embedded uh, yeah. into the blockchain, which can be true by anyone.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, like, when you publish a smart contract, you're publishing the code that you as a programmer have written in Clarity. Um, and, and we consider this actually, like, kind of an essential uh, feature. Like, we think that compiling smart contracts is really dangerous. Um, because, like, it, you know, if, if you're, like, philosophically one of these, like, you know, you say the blockchain represents the truth of our system, right? But like, let's say you have compiler bugs and like suddenly programmers are like writing correct programs, but like a compiler is now introducing bugs in their code that then get published on the blockchain. Like y- you've led to kind of an irrecoverable problem for your community.
1: Well, the where, same is true for interpreters. I mean, there is, I mean, you, if you've ever worked with an interpreter language, they have bugs too. They have the same kind of bugs. Uh, in. I think what you're talking about isn't bugs is differences. Like if you use this yeah. validity compiler, it's different than this one, but it's the same code. Um, and you really want to have a single source of failure in your um, uh, in right. your interpreter, I guess, is the only way I'd put it because technically your interpreter could have bugs too. It's but at least it's a rapid response.
0: Reducing the places in which failure can happen.
1: Correct, yeah, So, uh, which is a weird way to put it because typically people want to avoid that, but I actually think that's a reasonable thing to say in this particular situation. And you also have the advantage that, you know, the reason why, for instance, Solidity is a compiled language is in part because we can store it on-chain if it's compact bytecode, right? Um, Everybody gets a copy through the chain itself, but you have an advantage in Gaia in that you can actually publish and register... A, a, you know, the hash of hashed location of a particular uh, piece of code, and people can retrieve that and execute it on the fly. Um, you don't have to store it all in an actual chain, which requires massive amounts of syncing. Uh, at least I assume that's that's why one of the principal uh, reasons why you can get uh, you can accomplish that uh, design t- decision. Um, is that accurate? Um, well, I, I think. Or do you store uh, it
2: directly on chain? Right, so the any smart contract that you publish will have to be stored directly on chain. Otherwise, you get into a situation where um, you can't know that the blockchain is correct unless you're able to invert this hash, right? And you'd have to look up in Gaia for the source code and evaluate it there. And you don't necessarily want to include Gaia in your like verification. Process because then otherwise it's like kind of a
0: component of your blockchain. I would agree. I would agree with that. I don't think you should be including other pieces for verification of the system because that can be gamed as well. Say for instance, there's a problem with like the uh, the hashing algorithm associated with Gaia Storage. I mean, Gaia is a content uh, hash storage.
2: No, it's um, it's it's actually like uh, almost like a disk,
0: like a file name. Mapped to content. okay. Well, then but that makes it even even more more different in terms of like how you can manipulate that and stuff. So you want this? You want the source code for a smart contract because it needs to be uh, immutable in some in, in a lot of ways to be on the blockchain itself because that's what's providing immutability.
2: Yes. Um. Though I would say that like with the like the whole design architecture of BlockSec, like we imagine most applications will. Not require like heavy elaborate smart contracting, um, though. I, I think like not to go back too much to an earlier point, but like when it comes to the uh, decision between like accepting interpreter bugs versus accepting uh, compiler bugs, like it's true that both of these are programs written by like fallible people, and you're equally likely to have bugs in both. Um, mm-hmm. The reason that we think interpreter bugs are so much better is that you have to think about, like, how contentious a potential fixing hard fork would be, right? So if you have an interpreter bug, like, that means that your blockchain code itself is faulty, right? Like, you ship a patch, you initiate... VM a hard fork, <laughs> Right, like, your VM is bad, right? Like, everybody in the network can kind of agree that, like, the stuff that's being broadcast on the blockchain is okay but like the verification process is not okay right if you have a compiler bug you don't have that property because the EVM code that's being broadcast is being executed correctly
0: so it's a, it's a, it's a problem in the translation from human readable to VM code uh, which is which is way more dubious than the VM code
2: yeah exactly and it's actually like you know doing the reverse process, right? Like if you said, okay, there was a bug in our compiler, like everybody send us your source code and we'll like figure out what the actual true bytecode was supposed to be and we'll try to like resolve it. Um, that's actually in a lot of ways, many times impossible to do, right? Like it's impossible to recover source code from bytecode generally.
0: Well, actually the way most of the static analyzers do it now is they take the, like they take the solidity source code compile it to EVM and then they, they, they basically reverse engineer it, um, knowing what the EVM actually does and then compare what that, what that intermediate language is compared to the source code to see if it's doing what it's supposed to. And so in some cases it's not, but like you can never get back to the original solidity code from EVM.
1: Right. So uh, both, uh, both Buneb and and Ryan have been on previous podcasts, uh, on this network. Um, and, um, you know, the, they, one of the things that especially like, actually I saw Muneeb at, um, uh, what, what was it at? Cause it was consensus 2018, not yeah, two um, no, one year ago. I saw not him the
0: last ago. one, the one before that I was with you.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the last one, not the one from this year, but the one from previous year. Yeah, yeah. Got okay. Um, and he was talking a great deal about scalability. Um, and how you know the system that he's building can support you know millions, if not billions, of of app users. And when one of the takeaways I got from the white paper was this concept of app chains as a scalability. They called it I think they called it a scalability off ramp or on ramp or one of those. Uh, what can you describe some of that 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 to me? Um, like what what are these app chains?
2: Yeah, so I would say app chains are like an area where there's still like a lot of active both design and kind of development working out of the details going on. But the basic idea underpinning app chains is that similar to how um, Stacks is this like one layer of indirection on top of Bitcoin, right? Where you have your own blocks of the Stacks blockchain, um, but they're each embedded in Bitcoin. uh, You can iterate that process and create an app chain so that an app has its own um, app blocks that are, being broadcast by its leaders and then weighted to the stacks chain um, and this can be seamlessly done um, if you use the same smart contracting language because basically you know it's just uh, playing your transactions up to an app leader candidate rather than a stacks leader
1: it kind of reminds me a little bit of the plasma concept yeah, that way yeah. Cool. Yeah, and there's a lot of research that is even being done on that. Like, oh yeah, that's that's, that's a tough problem. That's a t- that's not an easy problem. Is, is the is the is the stacks blockchain a
0: UTXO based blockchain, or is it more like a key value blockchain, like uh, like Ethereum is?
2: Uh, more like key value, like Ethereum.
0: Okay, that that has a lot of differences on how you can um, see history, look up change the blockchain. Why did you choose that particular design decision over UTXO?
2: Uh, it, so it simplifies a lot of the uh, transaction formats, um, makes the blockchain much sort of smaller transactions to broadcast things like that. It makes it easier um, for clients to like understand what's going on. You get a much more understandable transaction fee structure um, when you don't have UTXOs.
0: And it's certainly easier for wallets to 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 reason yes. about like prices for transactions as well as yeah. keeping track of the state of what's in the wallet based on the keys that it's maintaining.
2: Right. Uh, it makes light client implementations harder is uh, I think kind of the the primary uh, disadvantage in my
1: mind. So there's a huge topic we really need to cover. So I'm just gonna transition into that. Uh, and that's Gaia. We brought it up several times, but it's one of the defining features I think in, in the block stacks architecture that makes it um, interesting to me, um, th- anything that's dealing with decentralized anything and storage of file data <laughs> it is really like the two combo is the, is a one, two punch that hasn't quite fully, uh, realized, uh, in the world at this point, in a way that I think uh, it will. And once it does, it'll be kind of amazing for what it does for decentralized apps. Um, and, uh, you guys have a, a system called Gaia it looks kind of similar to storage on first glance um i was wondering if uh, yeah i just need you to like what is what is this like is this like chunked files that are sent across a network or is this like a way to reference files that are in particular locations or yeah how, how is this also yeah. why did
0: you why did you choose this over re- like working on um, other systems like IPFS, Swarm, storage, right? Know, and you
1: were using Made MadeSafe, I believe. Like in 2017, you guys were experimenting with that and left it. So, like, yeah, like, what's what's the history behind Gaia?
0: Okay, yeah.
2: So, I would say that like the the like interesting thing about Gaia, or the thing that differentiates it from other decentralized storage systems, is that Gaia is it's more accurately described as like user centric storage rather than Decentralized storage. So, like, we took the view that with Gaia, the important thing for applications and for users is that they are specifying where their data is stored, right? Um, If all you're interested in doing is like encrypting your data, verifying that it's signed correctly, like, you could do that with cryptography that's existed for 30, 40 years, right? The thing that's actually like tricky in decentralized applications is like specifying where data lives, right? Otherwise you're just like trusting an app developer to do it. Um, So in Gaia, we developed a protocol where we said, okay, we're gonna give applications just like a unified protocol for interacting with different storage backends. It could be like just a local disk. It could be um, S3, AWS, IPFS, just a unified way for them to interact with storage backends. Um, And then users will like embed in their like usernames, which are controlled by them on the Stacks blockchain. They'll embed a pointer to where their Gaia data is stored. So when the uh, application is like running on your computer, it looks up your pointer, it uses that pointer to like get started, like to initialize the Gaia library. Uh, And then it can interact with your data um, using puts and gets right
0: um this is this is very similar to tim berners lee's project yeah. solid is it not
2: yeah it's super similar to solid um i think that like uh they were both kind of designed at uh similar times i think maybe uh the gaia protocol as it exists today was kind of like hammered out around a year and a half ago almost two years ago maybe um and so maybe a couple months before solid came out but it's uh yeah, they're, they're fairly similar if you... If it's you, like
0: a, these are my things, these are where they're stored, these are permissions on who can access
1: them. Yeah. Um, right. How does it impact the DAP users who are dependent on this data if, for instance, your S3 account gets closed down?
2: Yeah, so if you're a user and your S3 account gets closed down, that's a problem for you. Um there's no guarantee. <laughs> there's like no guarantee from Gaia that like your service provider will like continue to behave um, well. Um, but like, there's kind of two things I would say there. So like, one is that uh, the relationship that people have with S three is like far and away better than the relationship that any user has with Twitter, right? Like, I or enter and, for that matter. Or IPFS. Like, I enter into a data contract with Amazon when I sign up for an S3 account, right? Uh, That's, like, not really what's happening with Twitter, right? Like, when I sign up for Twitter, like, uh, Twitter initializes... I I enter into an end-user agreement with Twitter, which is a horrible thing. Um, So that's, like, kind of point one. Uh, Point two is you know you have options to use other data providers and the library will kind of like seamlessly move between a separate data provider so like if you update your username to point instead of s3 to like a server that you're running um, that's just using a normal uh, disk and has like an http uh front end um apps will just kind of continue to function at that point
1: oh i am looking forward to the day when somebody builds a bridge between github and, uh, and Gaia because like there's really nothing that would stop you from doing the same stuff if you could just bridge the two and then never pay the S3 bill. Right, yeah,
2: though I guess at some point Microsoft would say you're gonna start paying your Azure bill.
1: <laughs> yeah, but GitHub is free. I mean, you could just post whatever you want and this is an open source project and that's that'd be your Gaia storage, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's tons of little things out there where you could actually diversify your storage across multiple free uh, services. True. Yeah. And uh, and that's just cheap. One if you didn't catch that, Colin's real I'm cheap. not just I'm not just uh, <laughs> I'm malicious. No, I, I, I no, I, I just think uh, I think it's interesting that like, you don't have to be dependent on, on a paid for service. And yes, there are SLAs involved with that, but those same SLAs you pretty much inherit by running on something like you know GitHub. Um, and you're not talking about massive amounts of data here either, you know, they're not huge rights. I, I would assume, uh, yeah. I couldn't say that for certain. I think if you're going to use huge amounts of data, you know, this might not be the ideal system right now um, just because the nature of big, bigger data sets is that you know, you, there's still necessary on, you know, availability guarantees that we might not quite be there uh, yet in the entire ecosystem. So, you know, that would be an okay solution. to bridge Well, I new. mean, I would say if you're, if you're trying to host a, giant files
2: in your Gaia Hub and your Gaia Hub is backed by S3 and maybe you deploy a CDN in front of your S3 bucket or something, like at that point, you're capable of handling billions of requests.
0: So I got somewhat of an overview of what Blockstack looks like. And from the sound of it, it's a user runs a Blockstack core software. Hold on to their data, and they can access other people's data and access to decentralized applications on what people build. But like from a developer standpoint, what do I do to then leverage that data? How do I build an applic- a decentralized application that enables people to do something they couldn't do beforehand? And how do how do users get access to it or learn about it?
2: Yeah, so uh, there's a couple things. So one is as a developer, uh, we provide a couple of SDKs. That uh, make it easy for you to program in this architecture. So we have blocksec.js, which like, gives you kind of the basic tooling of building a blocksec app. It's like interacting with Gaia hubs, um, signing in and out uh, user sessions, um, validating user data, uh, looking up other users' data, stuff like that. Um, very straightforward. Um, The kind of like next level of thing that you would want to do as a developer, if you're trying to build an application where like, uh, you know, you're building up streams of data from many, many different users, not just sort of like small groups of users, um, you need to start like indexing um, data at that point. And so we have a library called Radix um, that makes building those kinds of indexes uh, very easy for an app developer. With all those tools, um, you can start building um, decentralized applications. I think that, you know, uh, most decentralized applications that we see today uh, could sort of be simulated by centralized counterparts. Um, I don't know if that's like a permanent feature of decentralized applications or not.
0: Let's say we're in the experimentation era of trying to yeah. see what works and throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks.
1: I've, yeah. I've built things that don't work in a centralized world and that the amount of resiliency that you gain from a decentralized application is so vastly superior than a centralized application that would take a massive amount of architecture to build. And, and you know, it's thinner, it's quicker, it's easier, it's, it's light to deploy. You could do it in remote systems. You could do it on the back of a Humvee if you really wanted to. Like these are... Those are the advantages of decentralized applications. That I'm seeing right now. Um, I think uh, centralized applications for the most part cover uh, most of the bases though. So yeah, it's just yeah. I don't know how I got on that, but yeah. Yeah, um. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, that like
2: uh, w- once you once you've built uh, these applications in in Box uh, there's a number of ways for you to get uh, people to discover them. Um, So you can get listed on app.co, you can participate in uh, Blockstack's uh, app mining program. There's a number of different uh, mechanisms to like go through kind of like block stacky channels to getting noticed. And then there's like, you know, just traditional ways of getting noticed like word of
1: mouth, things like that. So I I have some question about authentication, identity management, that kind of thing. Is it an AYC oriented system? Can anybody sign up? Um, how is identity managed? Is this uh, compliant with DID? Like, uh yeah.
2: more. So uh, I would say
1: it's not a
2: KYC dependent system. Uh, pretty much anybody can sign up for an ID, uh, start associating data with it, interact in applications with it. Um, the idea is that like trust is more of a phenomenon that's like built up over time between different users. Um, the sort of guarantee that we give you is that like this username is still associated with the same public key, uh, as it ever was. So that
0: that distributed DNS aspect is the big part of of what what you're saying is, is core.
2: Yeah. Um, and these identifiers are in fact, uh, compatible with DIDs. Um, you know, when you authenticate, uh, from the developer side, you get like part of the, like authentication response uh, token that you get is actually a DID uh, specifier, um, which, you know, the last time I checked, which I don't know, probably a month ago, uh, resolves correctly in the DIDs, the DIF's official DID resolver. Uh, So, yeah.
1: That's a very good feature. I think that's that's key for, you know, compatibility, you know? I think I think a lot of people build systems and standards for themselves, and then they forget that they really do want to be able to interact with other other people. And if they don't have that ability to bridge, you know, um, just basic things like identity between them, then they're not real. They're kind of turning themselves into their own kind of centralized system. I really like the DID standard, not necessarily in how it's drafted. I mean, everything's open to improvement, but the fact that it exists, because uh, I think uh, I think it's a good choice to be compatible with that. So um, yeah, it, it could enable tons of people to interact with your system, even if they are operating in different environments, you know, so I like that. Um, so I, I, we're getting kind of close to the end here. Is there anything that we really should have talked about that we haven't brought up yet? Like what's, for instance, what's in the future for Blockstacks? Like who's using this now? And what are, what, are, what are the kind of like the features in V2 that you were talking about?
2: Yeah, so I think that like probably the the biggest, most noticeable feature in V2 is going to be this, Support for smart contracts. Um, I think that that kind of really opens the door to like many other kinds of experimentation that app developers can do. So that's like kind of one thing. The the other thing coming in V2 is really the ability to have transactions on our blockchain at like much greater rate than I think we can today. Um, There's a lot of
1: give me numbers. What 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 greater rate? What are we talking about here? Give me estimates. Uh, We won't hold you to it. Give me a bottom estimate. (laughs) um i
2: i guess uh no <laughs> um i i like uh, hate giving numbers before uh implementation like a uh, uh benchmarkable implementation exists
1: i love that but what is your design goal uh
2: the design goal is actually so i don't know if you're f- familiar there's this like paper that is trying to decide like what the maximum bandwidth for a blockchain should ever be right? It's like this tunable thing. uh, And they try to use like the heterogeneity of the broad internet as um, the parameter there. Because like you want it to be the case that like somebody in a poorly connected region of the internet can sync with your blockchain, right? Uh, And for them, they say that the maximum such number is like four megabytes uh, every 10 minutes, Uh, Which is very low compared to what a lot of blockchains out there are kind of implementing, which um, gives you kind of pause.
0: Yeah, it does. Oh, it's difficult. But like in in dire situations, you can offload a little bit of that trustlessness to someone to then feed that information to you. I mean, like Cloudflare? Like Cloudflare? (laughs) I mean, like clients. Like clients are, are depending on a, a a network of decentralized nodes to hand you information.
1: Yeah.
2: Right. Um, yeah, I think, like, ultimately, uh, something that I think everyone in the blockchain space is going to, at some point, come to terms with is that we're, we're all playing with the same uh, physical limitations, right? Like, the internet is what it is kind of today. None of us are starting uh, infrastructure. Like, we're, none of us are laying down new fiber.
0: Yeah, support our we all got to run through the same pipes or yeah. series of tubes. Yes.
2: <laughs> um, so I think at that point it becomes a trade off of like how how decentralized you actually want to be. Do you like really want it to be the case that people in kind of the far corners of the Internet can sync with your blockchain? Or are you willing to balance that um, against some other desire of like moving a lot more data through your blockchain?
1: So what's the coolest DAP you've seen so far on the uh, Blockstack system? Oh man, I hate
2: to play favorites. Uh,
1: (laughs) Give us a top ten Buzzfeed list. (laughs) So I'd say I I like
2: I like using Graphite Docs um, a lot. It it feels like a need in my day to day, which is that like I like editing documents, but like every time I use Google Docs, uh, I feel like I should be doing something a little bit better. Um, and so graphite kind of scratches that itch
0: for me very nicely. Um, yeah, yeah that's a big one. It's definitely a big one. I mean, we use it, I, I work for status and we use Google Docs, and they're actively looking for a way to get away from it. Yeah. Maybe graphite's the answer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Microsoft word.
0: <laughs> oh, no collaboration is a big deal, right? Comment, Wait, collaboration yeah, and commenting yeah. is, a, is a very big deal. It's both.
1: Yeah, but That's yes. all online now. Microsoft has made all that stuff online. Still, like, yeah, I get it. I'm just being, I'm just being Don't. don't (laughs) I I get it entirely. I'm I'm perfectly on board. Um, yeah, no, that's great. So, so uh, what's what else in the space has got you excited? Uh, uh, you know, obviously you work for Blockstacks. What are what are you looking at personally as a as a researcher in this field, as a developer and engineer? What 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 has got you excited in the decentralization space? Um,
2: so I think that it's uh, really. A lot of so one of the really fascinating things that's fascinating things that's happening in the space is that people are starting to play a lot around, uh, play around a lot with essentially domain specific languages, but languages, right? Um, and that's a very interesting thing to me because like people haven't played around with programming languages like this uh, in a very long time. I, I think probably if you, if you look at like AI researchers, maybe in the eighties was probably the last time people really played around. Uh, This much with like how far they can push domain specific languages. Um, So I'd say that's that's really awesome That's cool. I love following the progress of everybody. Everybody's programming languages. It's super cool Um, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on around with um, Sort of advances on uh, just sort of general purpose PPFT uh, Byzantine fault tolerant uh, uh, protocols. Um, you know, people are just like digging up old papers and saying, like, well, can we like how much can we like squeak the performance yeah. out of it, which uh, I kind of like uh, uh, love just from like a fascinating to look at kind of thing. It's like it, it reminds me of like hot rod enthusiasts where like people are like taking an engine that basically works and they're trying
0: to see like how far they can push it before everything explodes. It's cosmos in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, let's, Uh, how can people like learn more about what Blockstack's doing? How can they reach out? How can they, where, 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 where do they go to do that?
1: How yeah. Start working on
0: this stuff.
2: Yeah, so uh, there's, there's probably like two key landing pages for you. So like one is blockstack.org, our front page. Um, a lot of info there. Um, the other thing is I would say if you're a developer, check out docs, D-O-C-S, yes, docs.blockstack.org. Um, it's our documentation landing page uh it's it's pretty great um i think we we do a pretty good job with documentation we have a bunch of tutorials walking through building your first um, decentralized application we also have a tutorial for people getting started with like playing around with like local versions of smart contracts so that people can start programming programming in clarity even if it's not today supported by our blockchain they can at least start playing around with the language, uh, yeah.
1: Cool, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate you coming on. It's uh, It's been very enlightening.
2: Yeah, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you all.
1: All right, guys. Uh, for the
0: listeners out there, if you do enjoy this, hit the like button, hit subscribe, share with all your friends. Uh, go to our donate link at the bottom of the description and give us a bunch of money so we can keep doing this. Uh, other than that, we appreciate you coming on and I look forward to seeing Blockstep keep growing.
2: Cool, thank you so much.